0: Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves, and my guest today is Gary Fraser. Gary is a BAFTA award winning film director, writer, producer, rapper social entrepreneur and the founder of Wido Media, an independent digital media social enterprise that uses creativity as a way to engage with the most hard to reach in society. Renowned for your gritty real-life urban documentaries, you caught the attention of industry professionals and after author Irvin Welsh introduced you to Oscar-winning director Danny Boyle, you were appointed as second unit director in the hit film T2 Trainspotting. You won the New Talent Scottish BAFTA in the factual category for your documentary Everybody's Child. Your short film In For Life received an MTV award and your self-funded Tolerance receives an Outstanding Achievement Award from TSB Bank and the Scottish Prison Service. Your ability to create compelling narrative using powerful visuals and language based on your personal life experience has led to you becoming one of Scotland's most well-respected directors. Gary, it's absolutely phenomenal to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That's quite a journey. Uh, I just been on you know, with
1: the introduction. Is he talking about me? It's like I had done that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's all you. It's all you. Uh, and, and pretty incredible stuff. So Thank you. yeah, I'm really really excited about this. So I mean, if we can start by kind of you know rewinding, going back to the very beginning. I mean, if you can set the scene and just maybe explain a bit about you know your early life, your childhood, and what that was like. <sighs>
1: Like I grew up in Murs in Edinburgh, and it was like when I say it, it sounds bleak and grim and depress and it actually wasn't a bleak grim and depressing you know i I think when I say it to people that didn't have much of my life experience would look at him it being it's a negative you know he he's he born into this environment, but for me you know i, I grew up in Murris Drive when I was younger and some of the most intelligent people I met, I'd never been to school. You know, some of them are, you know, I learned something when I was at university recently called emotional intelligence, you know, mm-hmm. and I realised that a lot of these people had emotional talents rather than academic intelligence. So, yeah, yeah I grew up in Murrays Drive. Uh, I think sorry, some stuff's been well documented, but I grew up with my sister. Uh, we grew up at a time when... Edinburgh was in the midst of an HIV epidemic. Um so sort of grew up amongst sort of all that, you know, cousins mm-hmm. using heroin and stuff like that. So it was at from a very young age, you know, I was sorta of, introduced to um the stuff that Irvine writes about really. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: I didn't actually realise that. It's only having done a bit of research into um, your work and and the background that I actually found out AIDS was considered, uh, sorry, Edinburgh was considered the AIDS capital of Europe. Um, You wrote in a comment over a 10 year period, 186 of my people died of HIV AIDS. I mean, I had no idea
1: that that was even really the the case. I think the reason you didn't have much in idea is because successive Scottish governments have tried to wipe over what happened with the yeah. HIV epidemic. Not one person has admitted that our reaction to it was a public health disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, it's never really admitted like that. It's almost like, yeah, they addicts in the Muir used heroin and they all caught AIDS. And that's not the reality. You know, it's much more uh, difficult to explain than that. You know, I think AIDS... At the time, you know, the city was fearful. The the world was really fearful of this virus, you know, Mm -hmm. and ignorance played into the strength of AIDS back then. You know, people would call it the Poof's Plague and it was only sort of related to gay people. And I think when some of Roy Robertson's research came out, you know, there was a link between Mm -hmm. intravenous drug use and AIDS and that maybe took a bit of the the relief off of the gay community because they were kind of getting... um, savage for for it, for it being their fault, you know, yeah. it wasn't it? You know, it, it was a, Obviously, it was an immune system disease, but I think what happened in Murhouse is, not just in Murhouse, I think what happened in Edinburgh, you know, I, I can't point fingers because I was a kid growing up on it, but my opinion, and this is only my opinion, I might be wrong, I'm not saying that I am a, a, an author on this, but when the police, for a minute, but, from the way that I heard about it was that a lot of the guys who were using it at the time, they didn't share needles, right? So they would have... They, they, be, you know when you roll a roll up and you've got your tobacco tin, you've got your skins and you've got your tobacco and you roll your roll up and or if you've got your weeds, you've got your weed box, you've got your grinder, you've got your stuff in it. You know, that there, there, there is a a there is an etiquette around that. Mm-hmm. Well, back then with heroin, you would have your tin, you would have your needle, you know? And what happened was the police shut down the needle exchanges. And when the police uh, shut down the needle exchanges, they wanted to know where all this heroin was coming from. You know, you've seen looking after Jojo, you, you've, for people who have not read everyone else's Skag Boys, you know, mm. there, 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 there's a reason and cause for what had happened. But like, it wasn't just about the, the, the heroin coming at the factory. That I think that, that the police shut down the needle exchanges and it meant that where one person was using before, 20 people were on one needle. Oh. because the, 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 the by-law was passed saying if you got caught with the, the needle in the works, mm-hmm. you were done for the misuse of drugs as well. If you had a habit and you were done for the misuse of drugs, because the police and the courts were aggressively targeting this demographic, it meant you were going into socked into to possibly die. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's there's a statistic that says that the, in one year there was more people died in Drylo Polo Station than what there was in South Africa, in the, the police stations in South Africa. Jesus. You know, and... That's the war on drugs, you know, this is, this is still, mm-hmm. these, these views and opinions are still what is the reason that Scotland has had one of the highest amount of drug-related deaths in the world in, in Europe, mm-hmm. you know, 935 last year, you know, so our education around it is terrible, you know, mm-hmm. our insight into successive health policies is ignorant, you know, whether it be methadone, whether it be legal highs, whether it be cannabis, you know, you know, we... We don't help as a society with drugs, you know. We, we very yeah. much, if it's no effect on us, we turn our back, you know, and we're very judgmental around the, and there's different categories of drug users, you know. I, I, st- yeah. I still don't know what recovery means. When people say, Gary, you're in recovery, I, I, I don't know what recovery means, you know. Yeah. I, I have a positive life now. But to go back to the thing with age, you know, it was the schemes in Edinburgh were let down. It wasn't just Muir House, you know. There was Westerhales and other places as well, you know. I think the schemes it Became an acceptable loss for some governments, you know, whether it be the Tory government, whether it be the Labour government. I think it became Scottish working class kids who really gives a fuck. Hmm. Jeez. Until people started taking it, like train spotting yeah. or looking after, until there started to become other reactions to, it, even with everybody's child, you know, so many people say to I me, mean, I didn't realise yeah. how many people were infected and stuff. And I'm no shameful around it as well, you know. I, I remember. Sort of staying in Glasgow and stuff like that, and they would, they would, you would still have the connotations for Glaswegians about mm. AIDS and Edinburgh, and you know there was a link. You know, when I was on, like, locked up when I was younger, there was a definite link between what people would say. You know, that the stereotype about it, but you know, I, some of the best people that I've ever met and loved have been HIV positive. You know, and I feel that they've been let in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know. What was your first
1: experience with heroin? Uh, I loved it, man. Uh, <laughs> I was, I don't know, it, my first experience taken or my first experience of being in the environment of heroin, because that's probably two different things. Um,
0: I, mean, I was really sort of specifically about your first experience actually taking it, and, and if you can maybe go into some details around what the, the experience was actually like, yeah.
1: Okay, uh, my first experience of heroin was when I was really young like 5 or 6 and my cousin came into my bedroom and injected and that was the first time that I'd seen blood hit the ceiling and stuff like that uh, that was the first time I, I, I'd i been around heroin and then when I was 18, 19 I can't remember what year that was but I think Trainspotting funny enough nineteen ninety six, nineteen ninety seven, 1997 had just come out and what had happened was I remember I was selling speed up the turn. I used to go up the turn in the nightclub selling speed and stuff and at the time, this guy says to me, do you want to take this up between to sell it? I was like 16, 17, and uh, it was brown, and it wasn't white. So I asked him what it was, and he was like, it's smack. He's like, this is coming back in in a big way, and he must have been an Oracle, because I didn't, I didn't think most of the drug use and in Edinburgh at the time was about ecstasy and mm-hmm. raves and... Mm-hmm. You know, people predicted people are going to be on come down soon. I mean, you're on a come down the best thing for that is hell. So there was a culture shift that happened. So uh, I was at Wester Hills and uh, when I was at Wester Hills, this lassie says to me, if I give you five bags of smack, if I give you five tenor bags to sell, I'll give you two tenor bags on top of that. And I thought that's 20 quid. That I have to give her back 50 and I have 20 for myself. So... I was like, that's all right. So I got the the five bags. I cut them all up. And uh, I made about seven out of the five bags uh, smack. And then I tried one. And the first time that I took it, I was sick. I was like, how the fuck can people take this? It was horrible. The first time I took it, I was just, i never had opiates in my body really, so I was being sick. Mm -hmm. And then the second time that I took it, I went, all right, maybe this is all right. And then the third time I took it, I just thought, where have you been all my life? This is amazing. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm making money i part of our culture. Yeah, I loved it. What, what does the experience feel like? We're well, taking heroin. Mm. You know, I was emotionally unwell. And if you're emotionally unwell, heroin is a, the, the perfect bedfellow for you. You know, I, I had a lot of shit that I was dealing with in terms of being in care. No family, a lot of trauma that I was dealing with and heroin made me forget about it.
0: Mm. Yeah. Jeez. Jeez. Steep stuff yeah <laughs> how, how does it feel like
1: thinking back to what that was like hmm. I used to consider myself weak because I had a drug habit you know I used yeah. to think that I was weak how can I know cope with life like other people that's what I used to think and now that I've now I sort of work with people who have been through trauma you know. I'm, mm-hmm. in, I'm in touch with Scotland's leading psychologists on adverse childhood experiences, I kind of realised that it's com- I was completely normal, you know, if you have been through the shit like I'd been through it, there was definitely going to be adverse effects in childhood, so when I look back on it I just think, yeah it's something that I had to go through in order to be as informed as what I am now in certain situations, you know it's, there's nothing better when I'm working with somebody who's got a heroin addict uh, who's a heroin addict now, or there's nothing better when I see people in the shit now and they mm-hmm. say, how did you quit, Gary? And I have to start telling them, oh, and, you know, maybe that makes me the person that I am today. So I don't have any shit. Like, a lot of people who misuse drugs have a lot of shame and guilt attached to their and I don't, you know, I, I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I don't feel like it's a bag. I, have, I, I say to everybody, man, your emotional baggage is either an asset or it pulls you down that that's what I believe, you know, that's life. That doesn't even just relate to addiction. And for me I turned that ass, I turned that baggage that I used to carry around in terms of like masculinity or you know, like feeling like why me, why me, you know, and Mm -hmm. like like why is it always me that gets like that? And and now I sort of turn that around and like like even at the T V festival there like I used to go to these places like the film festival and the TV festival and go why is it always me that 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 that's coming through the absolute schemes trying to break into this industry? And now that's like, why know me? Like, why why know me talking to Netflix? Why know me? Like, I I walk through there with an air of confidence now. You know, I picked up Danny's bath in January, and I'm like, I deserve to be here. You know, nobody can tell me shit because I am comfortable in myself. I didn't change. You know, I didn't have a weak. That's one thing I've learned about myself. I didn't have a weak mind. You know. I, mm-hmm. A lot of stuff that I do is on instinct, but it's done through positions of empathy and compassion. And I think, yeah, what what needed to happen for you to make that sort of transformation? I don't think it was one thing. You know, like I used to just put it in my wee boy being born. Like I used to just put it in my son's born, and I didn't want to be in prison. I I want to be something different. That's what I used to think. But now I believe it's not. It's no. It wasn't one thing. It was a process of things. You know, I had to Mm -hmm. learn about myself. I had. I had to learn to love myself You Mm. know I've got scars on me That I used to put on myself I used to slash myself Because Pain was something That I was accustomed to Physical or emotional pain You know When it wasn't there I would feel like There was something missing So My interpretations Of what I thought love was Turned out not to be love My interpretations Of positive relationships Turned out to be Relationships based on manipulation Mm. Such as the streets You know And that's the streets You know The streets lie to you (laughs) Yeah So they they seduce you You know Uh, They They yeah, the streets seduce you like that. So I think for now, like, the the the, the process of change is, is learning a hell of a lot more about psychology, you know, yeah. like in-depth psychology, you know, mm-hmm. like really learning about myself and self-awareness. And I think that the more I learned about all that stuff, the, the better a person I'll become, you know, and that's for yeah. my kids as well, you know, like you can't wake up every morning and be angry and stressed, you know, it's not good for you. And a lot of people who've never had problems with drugs, stress is the thing, you know, it's...
0: Absolutely. It's what your coping
1: mechanisms are, whether it be eating, whether it be yeah. porn. You know that, 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 that there are certain escapisms, and I think for me now, like, yeah, it, I'm not saying that I don't have flaws because I absolutely do. But my intention is just to be the best dad that I can be. And when you have, I've got three girls and a boy. The three girls that I've got, you can't even be angry with them. You know, you can't even be shouting. You have to. And the more that I, I don't be angry, and the more that I don't shout, and the more that I, I come down to their level and learn, like. I didn't know how to have fun. <laughs> hmm. like, I didn't yeah. know what fun was. I still struggle with the concept of fun. You're going out and just doing something for the enjoyment of doing it because that's never been natural to me. So now it's sort of bake cakes or <laughs> colour in stuff, stuff that I never had had yeah. m- my own childhood. You know, I'm, I'm sort of, through my kids, I I get my childhood. I'd never had a childhood, you know. I pretty much fucking... Being a, not being a criminal, but, but sort of just done my own thing for eight or nine-year-olds, you know, so to now at 40-year-old, yeah. have fun and, and creativity and art as part of that with my kids as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned stress there. It's interesting because I wrote down a quote that was actually our, our mutual uh, connection, Darren Loki McGarvey. And in the interview that I did with him, he said, one of the big areas where inequality expresses itself is in people's emotional capacity to absorb stressful events. So now, I mean, how do you manage stress today?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, Loki can articulate shit a lot more better than me, so let me just say that. Loki, you're a master at articulating stuff much more than me, so I'll make an attempt at it, shall I? First of all, right, is your environment stressful? Are people dying? Are people getting stabbed? Is there, is there a remarkable amount of violence? Is there a remarkable amount of addiction? Is there a alcoholism? Because that will affect your your stress paying attention to your body and 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 seeing if, if you have dry elbows that stress do you have loads of dandruff you know you're looking at your, your your signs of stress and also looking at your childhood and looking at the experiences that you had in your childhood to see whether this experience with that uncle or this experience with that There's a variety of things in your childhood that can affect you in adult life. You know, it could be a certain smell that triggers you. It could be sort of things. So for me, you know, the things that I've done over the last three years to deal with stress is I do kickboxing on a Monday. You know, I finish this interview and go right through to Woodburn and do MMA through in Woodburn. I suppose it's not the first fight that's happened in Woodburn Miners Club, but (laughs) I go through to Woodburn Miners Club. But more importantly, I have positive relationships in my life that are not based on manipulation, you know. Mm. I have relationships in my life where people hold me to account, you know, people do not let me and my ego run away by itself, you know. Mm. And I think, like, I do get stressed, but nobody... When I grew up in your house, nobody ever told me to drink water. <laughs> it sounds so simple, you know. I have to remember myself to drink water these days. Nobody ever told me to eat fresh food, Nobody ever says to me that your food should be your medicine. Medicine should never be your food. Mm. And that is what's changed. You know, I, I look at food to relieve stress. I, I have a balance of water. I do breathing exercises. I exercise almost every day. You know, so if stress does become a thing, you know, I, I, I know how to deal with it. But more importantly, I know how to deal with the food using. Now I say all that and sometimes I have a joint at night time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I try to stop smoking weed and stuff like that, but for me, it's like, well, if that's what I'm doing as well, you know, it's not that bad. At 40-year-old, If all I'm doing is having a joint compared to my life, you know, so that's my, but I can't even wake up at 9 o'clock in the morning and stress and have a joint, you know. Yeah, It's about yeah. being responsible in what you're doing, you know, and have a, a, a certain amount of, yeah, you've got, to be, you've got to be responsible for your actions, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, I'm just going to come back to one question because um, I've been thinking about this. There's a, a leading um, drugs professor or doctor called Dr. Carl Hart, and I've heard him a few times on like the Joe Organ Experience or London Real in interviews, and he's spoken about heroin specifically and uh, the withdrawal process and kind of comparing it to the flu.
1: Now, is that an accurate... No, a fuck. <laughs> really? To compare rattling, to to compare withdrawal process to having a flu, no. No. Your immune, like, when you have the flu, your immune system is down and you feel a bit unwell. When you have a problem chaotically with addiction Mm -hmm. and you withdraw from it, then by default the emotions that you're running from come back personified. So yeah. if you're taking heroin because you didn't like school when you were younger and you were bullied, and you've took heroin now to deal with all the emotions, yeah, that's nothing like the flu. Mm-hmm. I think that guy's never had a heroin habit before if he's saying shit like that. <laughs> Which is why I, I wondered, yeah. But heroin isn't <laughs> that bad. Like it sounds mental to say, but like I, I took heroin for fucking twelve years. Did I look, you know, like? Yeah. So heroin in itself isn't that bad, but if it's cut. Yeah. With all the shit that drug dealers call, you're, you're probably not going to get good skin. You're probably not going to have good teeth. You're probably going to get, you know what I mean, if you're injecting. So if you yeah. smoke opium, yeah. the Chinese were then a, were at a war with China for opium, you know, so mm-hmm. it goes back further. What what I would say about that is look at the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. It's not a war on drugs. It's a war on poverty. Middle-class people and upper-class people are very rarely victim of our war on drugs. You know, like the police didn't police anymore. You know, they just round people with addiction up for information. So the war on drugs is about information. And also, how come we can go to war with Afghanistan and heroin in this country shoots through the roof? The amount of heroin, the accessibility of heroin. Mm-hmm. I was sitting on a panel after I'd made everybody's child and there was a couple of leading experts on addiction there and I was saying, Well why did they not just why did they not just decriminalise drugs? If it yeah. worked in Portugal and you wanted to reduce the drug related death, surely the the right thing to do is decriminalise. Absolutely. And the guy says, Gary, the reason that they didn't is because the CIA want information for where the cocoa comes from, because that's their part of the world. But more importantly for us, the British establishment wanna know where the information's coming from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So what you have to go is the reality is working class Scottish kids are collateral damage that nobody really gives a fuck about. If that be the SNP, that can be the Tories, that can be the Labour, no matter which new politician is using the rebranded identity politics, mm-hmm. nobody really gives a fuck about people dying for pouting, for post for addiction, because they already have the answers. They just don't want to solve it. Hmm. You know, Because they've designed services that fit us, whether it be methadone, whether it be antipsychotics, whether it be all this prescribing shit. You know, and the reality is people have trauma from childhood and they use on top of it. Yeah. We're becoming much better at becoming a a trauma-informed society, which means that mental health services should be redesigned around them issues where drugs and prescription drugs... You know, look at ADHD medication. Yeah. Shot through the roof recently, you know, and it's like... Yeah. You know, come on, it's the same shit in America. You know, people, people aren't allowed to be people anymore. You know, you're having to be primed for perfection, you know, you know not yeah. to go and make mistakes and I think that's a, a mistake of us as a society.
0: Mm-hmm. So I mean compared to when you were growing up, I mean you see areas of like poverty today for example, I mean in what ways have they changed, has there been improvements?
1: No, definitely really? no, I think what's happened now is like when, when I was staying, I still stay in relative, I don't know if it's relative, I think I've graduated now from being underclass to working class, I pay rent. <laughs> So last year I was the underclass. I was marginalised, even though I was doing other films and that, I was still so soci- Even on train spotting, I was finishing train Trainspotting and going back to a pure abandoned flat. <laughs> going, fuck. Uh, but what's happened now with the inequality aspect is when I was younger, I stayed in a scheme. You would look out into the street and there would hardly be a car in the street. There might be a few cars in the street, but most people were suffering the effects of post-industrialised Thatcherism, where the trades were taken away. Disability living allowance was sort of introduced to the masses and working class people. You know, you didn't have to go and try. That was deliberate. You know, when Norway found oil, they created an oil fund and invested education. Mm -hmm. When we done the oil thing, we didn't. We increased the welfare dependency because we wanted to keep Scotland down as a country. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's not just Scotland. But we wanted to keep working class revolt down. And how do you do that? You put them all onto benefits, you know, you, you, you create dependency for the state, you know, and that's terribly what happened. But uh, I think that the... the, the yeah, I, I can't remember what the question was, but I think that the, aye, the inequality in schemes, what's happened now is you got somebody who's gone on three holidays a year, have a BMW, have a 52-inch telly, and they think they're better than the person next door because the person next door's a junkie and the junkie next door thinks that he's better than the alcoholic who stays in the street. So you now have... Um, massive inequality mm-hmm. in areas of poverty and then you have immigration adding to that as well so you have loads of Polish people loads of wherever coming in and community cohesion isn't really part of it as well you know so you do have despairing differences now so beforehand you'd be yeah. in a scheme in Postal like I remember sort of being in Postal in Glasgow when I was younger and the whole area was on its arse you know now you go through there and there's BMWs parked next to Range Rovers next to long term unemployed you know, materialism drives working class people.
0: How do people from areas like that afford things like BMWs and
1: Range Rovers? I think what happens is you, you do have like real working class people and they, they they buy the house and it's mortgage and stuff like that as well, but also I think as well is like, you, there is a lot of thing about debt, you okay. know, and, and I, I think like, economically speaking, you push people into debt. You know, our next bubble isn't going to be for housing prices. You know, the Guardian has already stated that like, our next bubble is going to be for the people that can't afford to pay their, their, their higher purchase on their cars. <laughs> yeah. Huh. You know, you can't live in debt. You yeah. know, we need even manageable debt. You know, you shouldn't be able to live in debt, but we, as a society, we do, and we didn't learn in 2008, so that comes back to haunt them as well. mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if the objective is to kind of flatten out the hierarchy, so to speak, because you
0: mentioned, you know, the um, the person with the BMW looks down on, who looks down on, I mean, it is the objective to kind of flatten that out? And if it is, then how do you do that? I don't
1: think that, that that's really an objective. I think what happens is, like, Alan Watts used to explain this mm-hmm. stuff, right, about the game of one-upmanship, hmm. you know, and, and that was, I call it comparing despair, you know, that that's where... Scotland rates so highly on the Health and Wellbeing League because of our comparing despair around materialism, you know. And the the only way you solve that is by redesigning schemes. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that I love about Loki is when he's talking about chippies, bookies, kebab shops, and people go, why are these people unwell? You go, it's pretty fucking obvious, (laughs) boss. You know, if everybody's eating deep fried pizzas every night, I say to my kids, have some carrots with it. My wee girl says, "What are you try to make us eat like a snob for?" I mean, it's fucking Jesus. vegetables,
0: but it's that culture thing. Yeah, totally. And yeah. and the fact that you can probably get three Big Macs for the cost of a salad nowadays.
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, everything's like you have, you have the, the you have these people that are vegans and they become food snobs. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, I remember this lassie that I was seeing, and and I was saying that I grew up on chippies and that. She went what do you mean? And I went, well, my mum used to just give us chippies a lot of the time. Like, that was just easier than that. And you go, these days, if I go and buy a chip roll, I kind of have to say to myself, Gary, you're worth more than a chip roll. And that is about, that is part of the love and compassion that I have for myself. You know, I remind mm. myself when I go to McDonald's and stuff, like that like, look, you can do this once every so often, but you can't live in here. You have to learn to cook the kids' dinner. And that's my challenge. And that's what I do, you know, like learning to just cook for the kids. Yeah.
0: Yeah. If you had to give a piece of advice
1: to somebody that was battling with addiction, what would you say to them? Come and speak to me. Yeah. I, I work, I do peer support with Serenians. I have a job now, mm. which is backed by a, a, a massive charity, a great charity. Mm-hmm. You know, come and speak to me, that's what I do, peer support with addictions. You know, like, I'm not saying I have the answers because the people with the addiction problem have the answers inside them. It's just that they're so used to their emotions being... They didn't have tools to deal with their emotions, it's why they use. Okay. So one of the things that I love doing through filmmaking, funny enough, is giving people the tools through creativity to deal with their emotions, you know, like catharsisism is one of the best things in the world, you know. Yeah. The experience of that is 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 enlightening. Mm-hmm. You know? And so do you have like a, a process specifically, like a 12-step type? I do not do that. Like I like to I want to give people options. If if you have a if you have a raging habit just now. You can go to smart recovery, you can put your name down for treatment, which is a Lovian access point, whatever it's called up on the morning side. You have narcotics or not, you have tools Uh now. You might take a wee bit from this, a wee bit from this. For me, I I went right to philosophy, I went right to meditation, I went Mm. to a bit of yoga, kickboxing, as I say. You know, I went to the other side because even though I can signpost people into all these services and stuff and I can help them with my job that's not what I've done yeah. you know I, I used a wee bit of narcotics and all I didn't go into a 12 step programme or have a sponsor or anything like that you know I used a wee bit of that because I liked the people that was there you know I liked the, the positive relationships that I got for them and it, it was inspiring to see people who had come off with of drugs and also t- sort of turned their life around but I always kept my identity as a filmmaker you know I just yeah Hmm. which is a great
0: segue into film and cinema. You know, I'm really looking forward to asking you some things about this. When did your passion for film first begin? Um,
1: Well, it happened when I was making a short film where I thought, oh, what I want to do is this. Um, (laughs) But I was at a place called Transition uh, up the town. I had a, a methadone problem at the time and I was just trying to find some way to get a job and I had to go and like sort of learn about computers and stuff like that and so I was sitting in this place and at the time Ian Rankin had this competition, right, which was called I think he had done a short story called Billy Bones and he only wrote half of it. And the competition was to write the other half of that story. So I done that. I wrote the other half of the story. But there was a narrative there was a voice in my head that I never really heard before. Maybe I had it when I was like thirteen, fourteen writing poetry, but I just kept writing so I made my own story up. And uh, some of my people were in prison at the time and I was sending them the story doing because I didn't really want to hand in parcels or, like, parcels is like sneaking drugs into prison. Um, <laughs> I didn't really want to sneak... I sound so weird saying it like that. I didn't really want to go to the jail and visit some partial cunts, so I, I, I wanted to do something else. So I wrote the story and I, I sent it down and, and I started getting, for the first time, I started getting praise and feedback and that made me feel good. It wasn't about... Stealing it. it. Wasn't about all the skullduggery shit that I was mm-hmm. uh, that I was coming from? So after that I wrote that and then a company at the time who are no longer going, a, a, a place called Pelton Video, they contacted me and they says, uh, do you want to make a screenplay? I thought, What's a screenplay? So I went on the internet and this and remember the internet was kind of new to yeah. other people at then as well. So I went on the internet and a thing called Rain Dance. I read this thing for Raindance, and it was like this is a screenplay, and I, I never forget. It was like this is action, this is dialogue, and and it had margins like at one and a half inches across, is where your dialogue, where your action starts, your parentheses. I can't remember what the diameters were. <laughs> so I got, I got some sort of uh, feedback. On my writing and, and this started a process so of me learning that I could write and turn that into a screenplay and I wrote this story called In For Life uh, and at the time I was, what was I doing at the time, I'd applied to go to college, I had a hair on habit, I was working as a security guard on this building site so I was pretty fucked and I'd say to a few of my pals, Sean, who I just mentioned to you, and if I say this to a few of my pals, do you want to come and act in a film? And they're like, yeah, of course, no problem, bro. And then on the Monday morning, nobody showed up, nine o'clock in the morning, the film crew showed up. So I say this to my partner at the time, Angie, I was like, eh, do you want to just act for me? She went, yeah, yeah. And so we just sort of played out some of our real life, you know. I was like, I, I, it sounds a bit strange, but the, the moral dilemma I for life was like, if I get stabbed because I've not got my blade, should I be walking about with my blade? You can't really explain that to anybody who isn't involved in knife culture, but it's that thing yeah. like, it's better to have a gun when you need it, rather than need a gun and not we'll have it. So <laughs> it was that romance. thing going, unless you're involved in it, it's very hard to sort of say that shit, eh? So yeah. we'd done a film around it, we were improvised, this guy was sort of, the, the sound operator became an actor in it, and we shot it over a Monday, and I didn't really get the film bug experience from that, but i started college, you know, I'd done a, I was doing like a media preparation for media sort of thing and I started college and I, I thought, I want to go on an HND. Like, and at the time, the college was sort of saying, you've no formal education. It's probably a big jump to go on a six-month course to go on an HND. And then before I knew it, and for life was cut and edited, which I wasn't there for that process. And then the guy says to me, look, I need you to come up and make a decision as a director. So I went, all right, I came up to the edit suite and they've put the film in front of me. I was like, fuck, that's nice. I, I directed this and yeah, that was the first time that I went, this is what I want to do. That this is what I want to do in my life. I see myself on the screen. I was a junkie. I was fucked. I'd smack on my teeth. It wasn't even me. But I went, all right, I see. And then I took that fellow, and took it to the college and says, look, would I be able to sort of get on this course now because I have the practical work experience to get in?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He says, I'll give you a chance, really. I didn't even think I was going to do it, but I gave me a chance. And then it wasn't long after that, it's funny enough, the person who's my accountant just now, they've seen it. And, uh, yeah, they, they put an MTV as part of their uh, Disarming Britain campaign. And before I knew it, I'm away in London, sitting with Chipmunk and Bashy and all them rapper people that <laughs> I've always wanted to be around anyway for a wee bit. So I've been around there amongst them. And I think that the, the buzz of being in London at MTV and all that sort of stuff, I was like, I want more of this, you know. When Again, did you, you realise that you had a, a real um, talent for it? We were shooting Tolerance which I think Shane Meadows says it was like the best student film that he'd seen. We were shooting Tolerance at the time, and it was crazy. We had three shopping trolleys running for different locations in Muir House with all the young team, all the wee hunts that were breaking into houses, stealing cars, and up to all sorts, One they? They day, they, we, they were, we were all making a movie, and I remember I was looking back on everybody pushing our tripods, and I was telling, because I, left my, I had a MacBook Pro at the time, a macbook a wee black macbook and I left it round the corner and, and instead of the young team stealing the computer somebody had said Gary you forgot your computer and they run it background. and I thought hmm. they could have sold that and made money eh? and yeah, they never yeah. it wasn't because I, I don't know if what, why they brought it back round maybe it was a collective we're all in this together but that I remember somebody on that shoot we went back to college and I was going through the rushes and remember this was normal like we'd done a, a, like a scene where somebody was overdosing and it was really powerful and I went back to college and I remember everybody at college just sort of looking in a certain way and I thought ah, I'm good at this and I remember somebody says it was like being on set with a real director and once they say hmm. that to me I was like my identity started changing I thought well maybe that's like that thing going, instead of going why me, why me instead of going why no me why can I not be a director you know and my big mate Another, I didn't even really realise at the time, my big mate uh, who acted in the grey area, Alan Carrick, he says, Gary, I remember something. It was like, Murhouse in the shopping centre in the morning was just like fucking 28 days later sometimes. You know, everybody was bubbled and... Jeez. It was just crazy. The canvas was mental, you know. And I remember I was fucked. I was picking my methadone up in the morning. I was getting Valium. And I was trying to do an HND as well, you know, with nay formal school. And I remember I had this computer and I was writing a script, and I'm walking past everybody, and at the time all my pals are selling drugs, and they're involved in whatever, and Alan says it was like everybody was involved in all their wee pockets of things, but I was walking with a sense of purpose, with a MacBook Pro, and I wasn't hard, so anybody, like not anybody, but a few people at the show present, because I just took that off of me as well, you know. but I not, it didn't bother me either. Mm. He says you just walked, and you were gliding through everybody, and you had your head down, and you were typing on your computer, and I thought to myself, but, like, when Alan told me this, I wasn't aware of it, but, you know, that was the, the, the sense of me changing. And that's what, I mean, that was a process. It wasn't just, like, one thing. It was me learning to change, you mm-hmm. know.
0: That's amazing. It really mm-hmm. is. Honestly, so, it's so inspiring. <laughs> it really is. Um, and, you know, I don't I don't know if you see it as that because you've
1: lived it's it. It's just the truth to me, yeah. It doesn't feel, I don't know, it feels weird, but I, I don't know what, what it is. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. If you can sort of describe this, I don't know how easy this is, but how do you sort of translate what's going on in your head to actually being on screen? You know, how does that creative process happen?
1: Uh, It it only happens when I'm hanging around with people who are Philippe Pelt and Muris, Royston, Posal, Govan. It only happens when I'm in the thicket. eh? Like, I want to take on social issues and I want to inform people that life isn't black and white. You know, like life is a lot more complicated than that, and it's a lot more complex than that. And like with *The Grey Area*, I wrote that when I was in a homeless hostel. You know, I started writing that when I was in a homeless hostel. So, like for me, I would walk through Leaf in the morning, through the Banani flats, or through Links View House, or whatever, and you would hear somebody shouting through the top balcony to somebody down there, or you would hear a domestic, and you, I'm saying things like. Who the fuck else as a writer and director that can be privileged to experience this? <laughs> because I I don't know, like it was an honour and a privilege to be to be to be not letting people's lives, but I remember I was sitting, <laughs> I was sitting at uh, the bottom of Linksview House in leaf and it was like ten o'clock in the morning, and the only reason that I sat there was just to spend fifty minutes to do nothing. But just to feel, because I knew I was coming back down to shoot the graveyard I was sitting there, and two guys came up to me and went, Gary are you punting gear again?" I was like, "No." I says, "I'm actually." And they says, "What? What's the project that you're doing for now?" We loved. I don't know if it was everybody's child, but like transporting was good, well done. And I just, I'm just sitting here doing this, and I remember coming back down and shooting a scene that was running through my head. I was thinking, "This is crazy. I've now came back down here with a professional film crew, my professional actors and stuff." And mm-hmm and done the scene so it's about visualization you know I, I, I think like speaking to Bugsy Malone's people like a rapper and speaking to some of his people and speaking to other people I think the mindset that you're in dictates the, the, the trajectory that you go in you know and yeah. for me I'm a writer before anything else you know I'm a writer director that's why I'll probably never get a job on Coronation Street or EastEnders or anything like that that's not mm-hmm. what I want to do you know I want to take issues that I want to use my life experience to my advantage, you know. M- my biggest thing is when I'm sitting speaking to BBC or all that shit today for the TV festival, like, my mm. life experience serves me well. There's not one day, even the, the trials and tribulations and the deaths, I had to go through all of that to be where I am now. Yeah. You know? Jesus. Amazing. And la- let me say, like... Yeah, sure. What what else is really important as well is language is important to me. Colloquialisms is important mm. to me, you know I didn't feel like it's me against the mainstream media. I'm not that way of thinking, but I am certainly up against uh, an establishment that didn't want to hear voices for the margins, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why the colloquialism's are important. I was, I was I was, up speaking to Stevie Graham, as I say, like earlier on, and mm-hmm. he was saying that Idris Elba's new movie that had come out was all uh, Jamaican language, like the patwa or whatever, and I just went, like, that made me feel great because when I watched The Wire and the colloquialisms of Baltimore, I immediately wanted to learn more about the issues facing people in Baltimore, the the, the social issues, and I realised that's the same shit that we go through. They're black and obviously a different culture, but... The social issues were the same, you know. That the, the race was irrelevant, and and they kept the colloquialisms there. And I think that I think I hold the record for the number of cunts said on BBC, <laughs> and I'm proud of that for my front seat yeah. freestyle. They had to go and get Muslim Ali, I They had to go and that. get permission. Really? And that made me feel so proud. I watched that recently. Yeah, yeah that yeah, made yeah. me feel so proud. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a
0: most random obscure thought, but I was watching Finding Nemo recently, right? And. Uh, I was like, where is it kind of based? I couldn't quite get a handle on it. And it's in Australia, but yet the fish, who are the stars in it, have an American accent. Yeah. And I was just like, so I went, I googled it. I was like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> and it's because uh, obviously it's designed for an American audience and they don't want to hear fish with an Australian accent. And you're just like, yeah. what? Yeah, you know," Which is really ties in, I suppose. Yeah.
1: It's not, not necessarily no. <laughs> the best example, Gary, but... Yeah, know. we'll try a fish with a script and a working clean, working class Scottish accent. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Know. If they didn't want to hear Australia, they certainly didn't want to hear. All right, Pam? <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. Tell me about when you, uh, I don't know how it panned out, but when you got the call for Spotting 2 and, and really what it was like working with Danny
1: Boyle. Um, I think the Evening News says uh, like It was true, man. Irvin had messaged me, and he says that uh, uh, Danny Boyle wants to speak to you. Three years previous to that, I'd applied to go on a thing called Guiding Lights, which is a, a mentoring film thing in, in the film industry uh, doing in England. And when I applied for it, he was one of the mentors on it. So uh, I, didn't, I, I obviously never got it. And Minervin says to me, uh, Danny Boyle wants to meet you in research for the new transport thing. I went, so I go, all right. I kind of knew... Through Danny's work, I think he would like me. I think he would take a shine to me. And, and I didn't want to be too self confident over that because it might not have be been the case. And like, <laughs> like, well, I me, mean, mate, Ian Henderson, right? He's a brilliant filmmaker and he's just really funny. So he was there when Danny first came into my office didn't Leaf. So I was working in a, a marketing and branding uh, office didn't Leaf, an, an agency, really. And um so Danny had came in and and Hendel says to him like, "Have you really got an Oscar?" And he's like, "I have got an Oscar." And Hendel's like, "I've got an Oscar in the car." And I'm like, "Hendel, like, he obviously Hendel's meaning I've got an Oscar of green." And I thought that was funny because I think he realised what it was just we weren't been serious about it at all. You know, he came at me initially and wanted me to act. He says, "I want you to act in Transport 2. and I was like, "Yeah, I'm more than up for that." Wow. And then really? uh, then he says to me, then I says to him like would you like to come and see this drama group that I'm doing up at the Serenity Cafe? So he says, yeah, come up. And he came up that night, and uh, I knew, like, my biggest skill set, without a doubt, is getting performances for actors. You know, that that is what I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm great at but it's certainly something that I'm capable of doing, you know? And uh, that night, some of the guys really, they put on performances that was hard hitting, that was thought provoking, and I just thought to myself, if you're a real cunt and you're witnessing that, you're gonna like it, you know. And I, I, I thought that Danny was a real cunt then, you know, because I could see him smile, I could see he was intrigued. Then after it, he came up to me and says, "Do you want to come next door?" So I went, "Aye." went next door to this sort of pub and everybody was there and now you have to remember at this point that was probably a mistake because I was working with cunts who were all ex-alkies and ex-drug addicts and I'm saying come on everybody let's go for a pint next door (laughs) that was a lesson number one never ever ask ex-alcoholics and ex-drug addicts to go for a pint that that offends them and but it was done with a sense of responsibility we all went next door a lot of them went on to lattes and that and I was like pint so Danny says to me that night, he's like, I'm going to get all your guys cast in Transporting, and there was like 38 people there or something, eh? And Seriously? I was like, brilliant. And then after I went brilliant, that night I was sitting there and a bit of the insecurities sort of kicked in. Uh, I thought, maybe I've got all the real people into Transporting, and he just went, I don't need Gary And the I've got all these guys. Oh, he phoned me and says, uh, look, he's like, uh, do you want the job as second unit director on uh, T2? He was like, look, the the, the wages are going to be shite, the hours are going to be long, <laughs> me and Anthony are going to send you today's stuff, you're going to do exactly what we tell you today, you're going to bring it back to us, and that's not going to be what we want. you still wanting it. And I was like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I showed up, and when I showed up at Bathgate, the first thing was to sign the contract, and before I signed the contract, they had this big list of shit, that uh, that my unit was responsible for. So big, Keith, who's one of my pals now, was like uh, so. Anthony Dodd Mantle, one of the world's top cinema photographers, he'd picked the cinema photographer for my unit, my, my director of photography, Keith Ingram, and Danny had obviously picked me for directing. And uh, there was a big list. There was like that yellow pages, <laughs> and they got to the end, and they were like, "Are you capable of doing that?" And I went, "Not a problem, easy as fuck." And I could see the producer Bernie looking at it as if to say, "Are we?" fucked up by taking this guy on he keeps looking at me like this is not gonna be easy <laughs> but from my point of view like look at the background that I've just come through. making movies is fucking easy
0: yeah
1: holding your pals when they're dying is hard seeing people socially like all the shit that I've come through, mm-hmm. getting paid £300 a day to be on transport and it, yeah that's easy you know but one of the things is you realise very quickly how difficult it is as well you know a comparatively yeah, it was easy compared to coming off smack working on transport spotting is easy, but the hours mm. start kicking in, you know. I, I, since I'd come, I, and this was the first job that I'd had cleaning as well, which was ironic. <laughs> so I was coming in, and you know, fully anxiety like for the first two weeks, even though we we're in this big studio, I didn't know what to go in the studio. So you've got like scenes and that happening. And I, I was really scared that I was going to walk onto somebody's set when they were shooting. And everybody would turn and go, oh, take again, who's this guy? I remember I was downstairs and I wanted to cross over and I was like, can I just go across there? And the guy was like, Gary, you're the second, you're the director, you can do what the fuck you want. I went, okay, and that made me feel good. And I think initially, like when we were doing recces and stuff like that, you would do this thing called technical recces where you would sort of go and recce a location and see what was needed and then you would recce it again and... It was a different way of making movies altogether, you know. It was mind blowing. The technical expertise was there, you know. Yeah. But it, was, it was actually mind blowing. But what would happen is they would have two coaches for all the crew, and then they would have a Range Rover for Danny and that. So I kept on trying to go in the coaches with the riffraff, and they were going, No, you're in the Range Rover, Gary. And I kept on going, thinking to myself, Are you sure I'm sitting in? So that left. Uh, and then the, the, the nitty gritty came down, and he actually gone out and done it. And I think it was really difficult because the lack of sleep really affected me. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that was something that became really difficult because it was like, you, you, you'd you go home, fall asleep with your clothes on, really, and then you'd get waking up in the morning and you're back out again. And it's like, fuck, you know, so that became difficult. But what really happened is I had a really, really, and it sounds a bit clichéd, but I had a really good supportive crew around me. You know mm-hmm. I had like me me and my my d p got on really well, which is Andy, and and for Day in the chase scenes and stuff like that, but then I had people who were supportive for me, and they probably realized technically I wasn't as accomplished as as a lot of second unit directors would have been, but performance wise I got what I needed so you could see where my skill set lay and where I was learning you know yes. and and that was good for me because I learned a lot for that as well, you know mm-hmm. shooting for like shooting for the studio and, and what you would do you know using three cameras on a shoot and how you would like panoramic shots and stuff like that that was really good and you know working with you and Bre- like shooting directing a scene with you and bremner and stuff that was great for me you know and you know like we were doing research for train and i was taking you and bremner to some meetings and stuff and after it i was saying to danny like where is it getting shot this time and he was like through in glasgow and I was like, why is it getting shot through in Glasgow again? And he was like, well, the Grips and the crew are travelling through and stuff like that. And I was basically saying to Danny, well, you're Danny Boyle. Well, surely if you wanted it shot in Edinburgh, it would be shot in Edinburgh. And mm. to my knowledge, I think that changed. You know, I, I got a phone call the next day again day for locations. He's gone, right, Gary, <laughs> we're shooting in Edinburgh now. So uh, where's Muir House?
0: <laughs> so Seriously. I went back
1: down to Muir House, area that I come for and I gave everybody jobs. You know, not everybody, but I gave a lot of people walk on, or I helped get a lot of people walk on pars, being you know, runners, and, yeah. you know, we didn't need the security in the Muir House. We didn't need the security in Leaf Feeler You know, I had both of people come up to me in the Muir House and be like, Gary, we've never seen it like this before. Because the wee guys would normally be flinging stains at the cameras or, or stealing or whatever, <laughs> yeah. they, were, they were the ones cutting over on a bike. and Albeit, it wasn't used in the final film, but it was just amazing for me to go down and use the local library and, you know, it pays back dividends. That's the energy you put in life, you know? Totally. Yeah, yeah. What was a bigger highlight, that or winning your BAFTA? If I'm being honest, winning the BAFTA doesn't mean shit to me. Eh? Like, Seriously? doesn't. <laughs> it. I like the BAFTAs because you go out. Like when I won the BAFTA, you know, I won the BAFTA and Muriel Gray says to me, you're no longer an ex-junkie Ned from your house. You're now a BAFTA award winner. And I thought to myself, you contentious cow. yeah. You know, you pretentious, (laughs) pretentious person. You know, like, I never considered myself a junkie Ned from your house. You know, that's not (laughs) what I considered myself as. And it it said me about the BAFTAs and what it did about me. Yeah. And then I went back and picked up Danny's BAFTA. You know, that's two BAFTAs. So, yeah, it doesn't mean, what it does is good for a night out. It's good to be, It's good to receive praise from Mm -hmm. the people that you work with.
0: Yeah, the recognition, yeah.
1: But don't get caught up in that, you know. The next again day, you go... Like, I won Danny's BAFTA, and the next again day... No one Danny... Danny asked me to collect his BAFTA. Went up, done that. Next again day, 7 o'clock in the morning, I'm still in the edit. Yeah. That's all it was to me, and and that's what I want. Hmm. You know, work every day as a film director. You know, that that is really what I want in my life. So when I go there... I kind of, I didn't expect awards now, but I kind of think that they're going to come anyway. You know, if you study your craft long enough, you become a master at. It. 14 years I've been making movies for now, so I think that stuff will happen along the way. And, mm. you know, it's good when people go, BAFTA award winner, filmmaker, and, you know, that, that's, that, that, that feels good to, for people to say that, you know, because not a lot of people win BAFTAs and that, so it is good, but also that happened so long ago, it's, it's about like, what did you do today, Gary? And that's what I hold myself to account for.
0: Yeah. What, what do you think makes truly great cinema?
1: Hmm. I think what makes truly great cinemas is stories that people identify with on their basic emotional levels, whether that be finding Nemo or whether that be The Godfather. You know, cinema has an amazing ability for you to escape for an hour and a bit and become part of other people's worlds, you know. And it's the same in music, really. It's the same effect. So I think for me, films that have a great structure to them in terms of their screenplay, you know, people who spend a lot of time, and now that I've been writing a lot of screenplays, you know, people who spend a lot of time looking at the structure of these screenplays, and their emotional beats are perfect. You know, their characters have transformations in them. Their characters are are, are three dimensional. You know, that they're, they're not caricatures. Mm-hmm. So I think good cinema informs you, educates you, and when you leave there, you're whistling the soundtrack. And that, for me, is a, is an experience, and it, there's so much bullshit in the cinemas these days that that's not always the experience that you get for cinema, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: That's such a great answer, Gary. <laughs> I really felt that one. <laughs> that was brilliant. Thank you. Man. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, how, how do you feel that you've evolved as a person throughout your life?
1: Oh, I don't know. Um,
0: I kind of, just sorry to interrupt sorry. you, but I kind of mentioned that before we started. I mean, you know, to to what degree do you identify with? Your former self, if you like,
1: you know? Oh, no, I I think life is about growth. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the person that I was at 10 was completely different from the person I was at 16. That was the same at 24. That was mm-hmm. the same at 30 and 40. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I think that People who we are now are not the people who we are in our youth, and I think life is about learning, and I think life is about growing. Some people learn not to give a fuck, and they become that same person. You know, Charles Darwin says that life is about adaptability. You know, that that's basic nature. Whether you, yeah. if you can't adapt, whether it be the rise of the internet, whether it be technology, if you don't adapt, you become irrelevant. You know, and and I feel like. I've become a bit of a social chameleon as well, you know. I, hmm. I can adapt to most situations, whether it be speaking to Nicola Sturgeon or whether it be speaking to Wee Tam, who's selling smack, it doesn't make any difference to me, you know. I've been through it all, so I've I, a good person is more important to me now than being a film director, you know, being good to people. And, and you know, I, I don't know, I, I think being humble, you know, I mean, the same way BAFTAs and stuff like that. I don't know if it is about praise as well, I almost feel embarrassed. and praise comes, you know, I don't really take praise that way, I can take criticism better than what I can take praise, and I don't know if that's a working class Scottish thing or just mm. human nature, but um, I think looking back on myself and and looking back on my life, it is just surreal, you know, the, the amount of shit that I've accomplished and the amount of shit that I'm accomplishing and my, my desires for the future, you know, they're, 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 they're aspirational for myself you know sometimes I inspire myself and I didn't mean to you know sometimes I sort of because I I very rarely do I I take stock of what is that I'm achieving you know but there you go the day I'm sitting speaking to like one of the main guys for Netflix and Mm -hmm. I'm reaching for stuff that nobody else in Scotland does you know and that's all right what are your your career goals your aspirations well I want to and in, in terms of the roles of being a director, a writer-director, you know, I want to keep making movies, you know, I want to make a drama series, you know, I want to take on issues that are relevant to me in, in society and, and inform people, educate people and hopefully put more more of an, an energy of compassion and tolerance and that sort of stuff into the world, you know, because I think that pays you back, so yeah, yeah m- my dreams is to, like, it's, it's, it's not really changed, you know I'm I'm still an entrepreneur, you know, I'm still a hustler I wake up every morning and I hustle, like fuck, you know, <laughs> like whether that be conversations and all that stuff, you know, so yeah, I I loved uni this year you know, I, I did actually like being at uni and I loved learning a little bit leadership you know, I, I feel that we are going to be very fucked very soon with implications of Brexit, which means people who are vulnerable and people who probably receive a lot of services for charities and stuff like that, that's all going to dry up. So for me, I, I I want to keep taking on issues that are important to me and to people who are underrepresented. And maybe more importantly, what seems to be happening now is that I feel like I'm becoming a voice for people as well. You know, like use yeah. me, you know, use my, my position as a, as a voice to take shit out there, you know, whether it be homeless people, whether it be people in addiction, whether it you know I like yeah. representing people who are downtrodden because I feel like if I can take their voice and, and, and make it humane and, and make it someday make it something that's worth fighting or thinking about, then that's a privileged position to be in life.
0: Definitely. Yeah. There's a lot of parallels with Darren yeah. um, in that regard.
1: Yeah so if he's a Ouija and I'm a Chukta so I reckon I'm better, eh? <laughs> <laughs> nah. and let, let me just say something about Loki as well. Like, it's inspirational to see somebody coming from a similar background to myself doing their thing, you know, because a lot of the time I'm in that, I'm in the same as him, you know, a lot of the time I'm in a mixture of worlds and it, it can feel intimidating, great, bashful Confidence building on the same moment, you know. I went to go and see his poverty safari thing, and I think it's amazing. I think it's absolutely amazing to see somebody like Loki carrying the message that he carries because both of us are similar, but both of us are very different, and mm-hmm. I like that part. You know, I, I rap, I rap nothing like him. Mm-hmm. You <laughs> know, I have socials opinions. Some of them we really agree on. Some of them, it's just that we're, a bit, we're completely different, and I like that because. I reckon there's more people like Loki and I reckon there's more people like Gary than what media really recognises it for, you know. So there is a lot of people out there that, that do have valued opinions and do have something to say about the society in which they live and there are no politicians. 100%. And I like that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Because people are taking ownership of their stories now and I think when you start taking ownership of your stories, the world's your oyster.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. This is a big question but I mean if if you do feel there is one what do you think is your kind of purpose in life?
1: It's to be a positive person um it's difficult to be positive when you're consistently against barriers that don't want you in there you know so for me my purpose is to be honest with my purpose is to be a good dad you know I want a I want my kids to whether it be looking at movies whether it be looking at the posters that have been all around the town you know my kids now recognize me on social media and through the rap music and that as well so my, my 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 purpose with them is, is to be a good dad and always be there for them and teach them that women can be strong and independent and you have just as much right as these guys in life you know like learn to ask but also learn to fucking get your right hook in order as well you know like being a woman is really difficult these days and I have so many sisters and daughters and nieces so I want to encourage them to stand the fuck up and be counted for, you know, and no for into the feminist argument or this argument, you know, just stand the fuck up, mm-hmm. you know, and be proud of who you are and, and I want that for all my nieces and my, my, I want that for all the female members of my family because I think that there's a lot of male lust that controls sexualisation of children in the media and there's a lot of sexualization and lasses, it's like you can't be nothing unless your arse is like this unless your tits is like this, unless yeah, your yeah. lips is like this, unless your hair is like that and I don't think that's healthy for you, you know, I think you need to be healthy and you need to stand the fuck up, it's like what I say you need to stand the fuck up and be counted man or, or the world just looks you over and I say that to all my I teach my girls how to box I teach my girls how to have an opinion mm. you know, and hopefully that uh, comes back and tenfold for them, you know, that they do stand up and guys will only be downtrodden to them. So that's another purpose. And I think the purpose is a three-dimensional because working with Cerenians, my purpose is just to get somebody off the streets into a house. My purpose is to get somebody onto a prescription to stabilise their drug use. My my, my my purpose is to show them that the drug use can get to fuck and you can learn to take control of your life, you know. Yeah. So I'm working with refugees, so I have different purposes and it depends on... What hat I'm wearing? You know, I'm very mm-hmm. idiosyncratic. You know, a lot of people will say that's a bad thing, and I, I don't know whether it's good or bad. But depends on the challenge, depends on the purpose.
0: Mm-hmm. You may want to challenge. Uh, sorry, you may want to channel your ego for this one. But what would you like your legacy to be?
1: I'm not bothered. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not really bothered. Man, I want. I'm not really bothered. My, My legacy will be when you watch my films, you know, I'm immortalised now. You know, the internet's there. I now put my work out, you know, so I hope in 50 years' time, 60 years' time, people look at my stuff the same way I looked on Peter McDougall's stuff for the 70s, you know, the social realism stuff that came along. I want people to look and go, he was good at telling stories like that. That's it.
0: (laughs) How do you define
1: success? Waking up in the morning. Just waking up in the morning. If I can wake up in the morning and be healthy, or if I can wake up in the morning and channel myself, then success will follow. You know, success is a spectrum. You know, I, I look at my defeats like they're a success because I got over them. You know, I look at the hurt in my life and the the, the, the transformation it as a success. So success for me is, is, is probably longevity in the film game. Mm-hmm. You know, and being able to obviously take on the social issues while I did. there, Yeah. How, how would you describe your mindset at the moment? Hmm. Extraordinary. I don't know what's happening to me. I actually don't <laughs> know. i just never been to school. Just been on a master's at university. I dropped out, but then they feel like a cheat? You know, still got some good friends and who are sharp minds. It begins to get scary mm-hmm. because I look at politics and I go, could I, should I... I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but there's not many politicians that I meet that can tell me shit. So you're going to go, is it up to guys like me and Darren to start looking at politics in a different way and encourage people for the schemes to, you know, this? can I just say something, I think this country is a sleeping dragon, you know, I think people have a lot more to offer in this country than what they're actually credited for and you can't look to media And whatever to change it for you. You know, this country, if it really wanted to have a revolution, it could have a revolution and it would scare the fucking world, you know. Mm -hmm. But we, it's okay to be angry. We're always told you can't be angry, you can't be upset, don't be upset. Uh, (laughs) I think this country should be a hell of a lot more angry than what it is. Mm -hmm. I think this country should stop looking at the media, papers, the sun, the daily record, all that bullshit and start looking and go, wait a minute, what kind of future do I want to provide? And I think we should be taking on of collective identity, and I think, I don't know if Darren agrees, but you look at the, 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 the ramifications of what was happening during the independence referendum, and a lot of the people who stood up for independence didn't they represent me. I'm an embarrassment to them, you know, whether it be Wingsy Scotland, Bella Caledonia, all the bullshit that comes up, like, Nah, they weren't talking about people from Muris. They weren't talking about people from Western Hills. They were talking about how their revolution was branded for a coffee shop, you know, and people play identity politics right now, you know. People fall victim to a lot of shit, you know, and I think if you look at guys like Jack Mafia, Alibaba, or certain inspirational leaders, you know, we already have the answers. It's just about whether we're willing to put in that work, you know, are you willing to sort of actually go... Yeah, you know this is what it's going to take, and we need to shake society up. You know, we, we after Brexit, we're falling we're fun into some real dark times. And if you didn't have, like, diamonds only formed in the light, you know, they're formed in the dark. They're formed from the dark. They're formed under stress, and we need to now start looking at who our diamonds are. You know, and yeah, we need to start pushing these narratives forward now because I'm sick of fucking wars. I'm sick of the war on drugs. I'm sick of the war in Afghanistan. I'm sick of the war in Iraq. I'm sick of the war on poor people. You know, we need, we need other types of war. We need a war against fighting back against elitism. We need wars fighting back against the, the inequality in terms of education, the inequality in childhood. And I think you have to look, not just in the schemes, but you have to start looking at social cohesion a bit better. You know, you can't have it where people in Silver Nows have a 10 years. More life expectancy in people across the road, you know that that yeah. inequality is driving our health as well. And mm-hmm. there is going to be an attack on the NHS. You know there is going to be real people coming in and saying, "No, we have insurance services for you." And it's up to us to go right. How much is this? Are you willing to take? And like to play on the politics thing, like the SNP can't be the only people fighting this battle you know, mm-hmm. because they are politicians and they are a part of the political establishment and whether you like to say it or no, they don't represent the views of a lot of people that I have and, and I think we need to push that as well, you know, you need to hold them to account. It's almost like you can of say, oh, Nicola Sturgeon, it's like, no, politicians should be held to account no matter what background you come from. And I think right mm. now you have the unionists and you have the nationalists and I think it's all bullshit. <laughs> I think you have people and you have human issues, and you tackle them first, whether it be, you know, I designed a character in the grey who was a loyalist, deliberately for me to have empathy and compassion to that side. Because I was also shooting a documentary during the referendum, and I seen the hate that was there, you oh, know, yeah, and yeah. this country does have a certain amount of hate in it, and we didn't have a lot to learn about history as well, you know, we're not taught about colonialism, we're not taught about what we've done to the world, and until... You know, I think we should be holding ourselves up and going, "Look at what we've done to Jamaica." Mm. You know, we had that. We, we have, we have, contributed to slavery so much. When you go up to the Royal Bank of Scotland at St Andrews, the first thing that strikes to you, he doesn't. Oh my God, a lot of black people must died for this cornicing and this artwork. You know, you just go in and go, "That is beautiful." It leaves a horrible taste in my mouth when I look at our successes through colonialism Mm -hmm. you know whether it be the architecture whether it be you know a million and one things like that and we need to have a collective sense of where we want to go in the future and part of that is not looking at World War 2 and thinking that we were anywhere near superior to the Germans because that's not the case and that's a narrative that's pushed onto us you know we won World War 2 and everything was great we created a national health system yeah, well, that's not the reality, what happened, you know, and until we start looking at collective identity and where we want to go and having having better and more informed opinions on our consciousness, you know, it's what we need. And there is an awakening happening. You know, mm-hmm. I do believe there is a spiritual awakening of people sort of waking up and going, well, wait a minute, you know, your, yeah. your, your, your challenge is not to become obsessive about it, going, oh, it's Illuminati then, it's this, this, <laughs> and get out of the them and us mindset. You know, yeah. we're, we're just people and people should be addressed on their very basic levels and the rest it will fall into place. <laughs> <laughs>
0: awesome. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received?
1: <sighs> it's probably for Danny. It says a film isn't made up as a one-hour piece or a 90-minute piece, you know. It's tiny, tiny elements that you build in and eventually you get the piece and I have to resort back to that mindset when it comes to making movies again, you know, I have to break it down to, is this look working, is this scene, is this shot cutting with a shot and go right back to the the microscopic elements of making movies and the narrative and An hour becomes from two seconds. it's yeah. you know, built up like that, and that's you can't really teach that to anybody. It's just you've either got it or you've not.
0: It's such a cool way of looking at it. Yeah,
1: it becomes microscopic in its detail. You know, you, for the whether the eye line is right, whether the the intensity and emotional charge is there, where the sweet spot and the subtext and the scene is. Mm-hmm. You know, where the light is. You know, you're just, it's art, man, and it's beautiful, but you have to go right back into the details yeah, and be like the devil is in the detail and that yeah. for me is the beauty of being a scriptwriter as well you know you're, you're thinking about the, where the emotional beats lie and it doesn't make any difference well it does make a difference say so it doesn't make any difference if it's shot on an iphone compared to a red but i can feel my uh, director of photography throwing things at me just even thinking about saying stuff like that so yeah it does make a difference visually but yeah it is about building narratives very small and your structure,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Storytelling, alone. yeah, definitely. Yeah. What What is your favorite film of all time?
1: Changes, man. <laughs> Changes. Usually, menace to society, or. What eh, oh, was the film? In, it was in America. Oh, eh, New Jersey Drive. You know, my, my films are all most, most of my films are about black culture in america you know this big guy from your house has made inspired about the wire and drama series he's really inspired I me mean, the gomorrah tv series and stuff so my my, my films and um, changes but the subject matter doesn't it? if, if there's about stories about guys coming at the hood if it's about people having triumphs over adversity yeah that's the stuff that i love watching you know i love watching stuff there against the odds this guy makes it whether it be 50 cent you know i bet, my narratives aren't really based in film. My inspirations are based in rap music, you know, like whether it be Kevin Gates, Jay-Z, fuck, you know, Kendrick Lamar, my my, my stories, all them people have the exact same story but completely different, you know. Yeah. Me and Loki have the same story but it's different, you know, <laughs> and that's, that's what feeds creativity, you know. So for me it changes, you know, but music is my inspiration, you know. Writing instrumentals is, you know, yeah. That's where it comes. It doesn't really come through films that much. It comes through telling stories through poetry and then uh, the visceral images start coming to you and it just becomes something else.
0: Yeah. Jeez.
1: Yeah, I was speaking to Bugs and Malone's people yesterday. You know the rapper, Bugs and Malone? I actually don't. <sighs> really inspiring guy, inspiring story. I was speaking to his people yesterday and I think this is fucking unbelievable. You know, like, there's no degrees of separation, you know, and yeah.
0: I need to check him out.
1: Yeah, good man He's a good he's a good rapper And good storyteller And just he's just released an album Called Be Inspired And good. I just think Yeah, this is a black guy From Manchester And it doesn't make any difference You know, the, the subject matters People from Pult in the Muir House Listen to his stuff You know, it doesn't make any difference they, they call it an estate We call it a scheme And the issues And the social issues That are faced And he, he talks about his life Very candidly And, and it's very similar to myself so I think for me it's like Two years ago, I'm sitting listening to this guy like, this is an amazing rapper, and now I'm sitting speaking to these people trying to get me to be an actor. Yeah. It's just crazy to me. Eh? I've just been listening to him in Ibiza. Fast forward a week, I'm speaking to these people, so it's like, why would you not think anything's possible? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So if you had the opportunity to speak to your 20-year-old self, what would you say?
1: The drug game's a lie. The sold you a lie, man. You know... I thought was I wanted to be he was a drug dealer and turned out, the bigger the dealer, the bigger the grass. Huh. you know, what do I say? It's no surprise when you look in my eyes, you know, for a fact that the drug game lies and, yeah, I, I wish that I hadn't been hoodwinked as much, you know. The people that I looked up to were bullies and dirty bastards when I look back on it. In hindsight, a lot of them, you know, they were treacherous. I just didn't see it at the time. You know, I probably had to learn and I'm glad I survived the the shit because it makes me a better person. But back then I just thought that, I just, I don't know, I I looked up to the wrong person, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not that I've changed. It's just that people like that didn't, you know, and it's no good to walk around hurting people. You know, that's not a good energy to put in life. And I think they hurt people hurt people. Yeah. You know, so to grow through all that, you know, you kind of see it like that as well. You know, mm-hmm. that's why it doesn't make any difference. If somebody's telling drugs, then go and do your thing, bro. But if that's the energy that you put in life, the world is a reflection of you. So if you're walking around with a blade and an eighth in your pocket, thinking that you've got the world sussed, mm-hmm. trust me, it's going to come back and bite you in your arse. You know, you're either going to get stabbed or you're going to end up in the jail. And people, because people are, are, are trapped in masculinity, they go, ah, the baller send me to jail. I'm the baller, of this. And you go, yeah, but when you have daughters and you have a son and you have children around you, is that the shit that you want to be teaching them? It's all right. It's you not know, like, I don't want what to tell my wee lad to go out and batter anybody. You know, I don't want to tell my wee lad to go yeah. out and fucking carry a knife and stab people if you want to be hard. That's not what I want. That's not the message that I want. You know, mm-hmm. I want to say, look, like, it's all right to be vulnerable. Yeah. In this day and age, that's, that's difficult for people.
0: But like what you're saying there with knives, I mean... I'm just trying to think about this whilst I'm speaking,
1: but mostly they're carrying it for protection. So car- you- no, no, they're not carrying it for what they think is protection. That People who carry knives are carrying it because they're scared. But you're not allowed to say that you're scared. You're, you're not right. allowed to say that fear is a driving factor. So you ca- I'll carry it f- for protection because that sounds better than saying I'm scared. You're not allowed to be scared. In a scheme, if you say I'm scared... I'm fearful, then words will get you fucked up. So you're not allowed to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So you've got to say, I carry it for protection. I carry it because it's better to have a blade and need it rather than need a blade and not have it. Mm -hmm. That's all bullshit. You know, hurt people hurt people. And why are you thinking that stabbing somebody and taking somebody's life is is all right? You know, do we desensitize ourselves so much to say that that's not my brother, Mm. you know? we are driven by fear and we're driven by masculinity and we're driven, some people, no everybody, Mm -hmm, some people mm -hmm. are driven by fear, some people are driven by masculinity and when you put that into a toxic environment, you know what prevails, you know, people go, I'm a gangster. You fuck. (laughs) You know, people in the media create these stereotypes, you know, whether it be the young black guy driving a car with a gun, you know, people create this thing and it's just, it's bullshit man, you know, mm. we're all humans and we're all individuals and we should be responsible for our stuff and some, didn't get me wrong, I've met some people that couldn't give a fuck about killing you and serving 20 years in a jail. Some people are just switched off for that because they're desensitised and probably sociopaths, you know, I didn't want that and I know, I think even them people didn't want that, it's just that emotionally they know how to deal with it. So yeah. You know, I I do want love and compassion and empathy, and that's very difficult to take that into a scheme. You know, but it happens and I think that you need to have mere people who have transformed their lives. Not just me, but like you need to have more people like that because if you have mere people from prison getting work and mentorship and, and, and befriending people and stuff like that, you know, I think if you then you have a criminal record and you apply for some of these jobs, you probably shouldn't get them. You know, I think people with criminal records, and especially around violence and that, I think if they've turned their life around, they're the perfect assets to help other people turn their lives around as well. You know, that's why, yeah, yeah. like, it's like me now, you know, I have friends that are police now that used to chase me around. I have friends who are gangsters now who do whatever. You know, I have, I have varying degrees of friendship but it's not the same as what it was before, you know, like my 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 notions of loyalty has changed. My loyalty is to my kids. It's not to the streets, mm-hmm. it's not to the scales, it's not to knives. You know, my 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 view of loyalty has changed, you know, my, my view of the world has changed. So it means I have to change like that as well. You know, that may be a bit of contradiction, but that's the way no, I
0: feel I, Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, yeah. Last question's a big one. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why?
1: It would be the political system and it would be governments. Mm -hmm. I would base. I would change what a government is and I would change institutions to be built from the ground up rather than it being divide and conquer politics. You know, I would change. Mm -hmm. I would base. Like, say you look at a scheme, you know. I would change that, you know, I would change the institution, you know, I wouldn't have, I'd have it based on, like, one in twelve people can cure cancer, one in twelve people have the ability, that's the way in weller Nature Designers, instead we put people into uni, we put people into this, and we put people into that, and I would look at something different, you know, I, I would change the world where it would be about... Spirituality, but no said in a way where you have to be sort of shameful for saying it. You know, it would be about health and well being. It would be about diet. It would be about art. It would be about creativity. You know, it would be about housing. And right now, it's not about that. You know, right now we mm-hmm. like stay in a materialistic world where everybody just wants to buy their house and have holidays abroad. And <laughs> they're sold a lie. You know, I might have been, I might have said that the drug game to me was sold to me, and it was a lie that I was sold. That might be the case. But there's certainly a lot of other people that they are, it's not the drug game, they're getting sold, but they're getting blinded by clickbait, they're getting blinded by the the consumer society in which we live, you know. So for me, it's about changing. I would change people's attitudes, I would change people's, I would change society, but more importantly, man, I'd have a middle finger up to politics and get all the fuck, you know, because. Mm you know we live in a divided society and i would rather have friends than enemies
0: that's a great answer man thank you bro <laughs> gary it's honestly been an enormous pleasure speaking with you thanks you um, for let me speak shit on your program <laughs> <laughs> no, no not at all honestly it's been uh, your your story is truly inspirational i
1: mean what you've achieved is is really oh it's no incredible. nothing yet man yeah i believe that yeah maybe that's why i don't <laughs> look at it like that like i don't feel like the Obviously, when you say it out there, it sounds, achieve- it sounds like great achievements, but I feel like I've not even started yet. Yeah. In which case, I can't wait to see where you're where you're going to go with this. Thank you. Watch the grey when it comes out on uh, BBC One, because that'll be a good start.
0: Awesome. Can't wait. Thank, thank you, Gary. Well, thank you so much, my friend. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers with us. <boss. laughs> You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show and we'll see you at the next episode.